If you're good at something, never do it for free. Typhoon, y'all know me, and I'm coming up, just wait and see. If you're good at something, never do it for free. But if you're great at something, would you still agree? Typhoon, y'all know me, and I'm coming up, just wait and see. If you're good at something, never do it for free. But if you're great at something, hey everyone, welcome back to Kevin and the Wu Tang Clan, and I am just exhausted from watching all of these NBA games. just an emotional roller coaster, even though not my Nets team isn't even involved. And I mean, they got in the news today with the hiring of Steve Nash, which I will talk about later. But Andrew Raimondi is back on the podcast. As always, it's nice to have you, Andrew. Hey, man. Uh, I can't believe you didn't say your patent hit all the craziness. Because, I was, trying, uh, to sw- I was trying to switch it up, but yeah. It's, 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 September, it's September 3rd, and as you pointed out, I'm stealing what you just said to me. Every game in September has been a one-possession game. Um, we had two pretty wild game sevens. We had uh, the, the Bucks heat game yesterday, and we literally just probably 10 minutes ago watch OG Ananobi hit a buzzer beater basically to keep the Raptors alive. I'm sure you were really enjoying that one. Having keep my uh, final pick them alive, to make the baby. finals. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and then tomorrow I'm up with the Bucks who arguably I, well, whatever we can get into it, but um, yeah, man, really, really wild. I, I, I don't even know what to say or like how to logically ask you. I mean, what, is that the moment of the last three days or is it, it probably is still the sequence at the end of the Denver Utah game. Um, it's, which is crazy to say, because that's a, how often do you have these buzzer beaters? And, and usually you get like one every two playoffs or so we've had two already. And then one, one near series walk off uh, wild, wild stuff. And, hey, man, I feel, you know, when the Blazers with the Blazers or whatever, like, just to piggyback off your next thing, like, I actually almost feel relieved that we probably won't have time to talk about the Blazers very much in this podcast. But there's this weird feeling for me always in these Blazer things, especially because they get eliminated, usually in lopsided series. Like, I just want it to be over, and then I need a day or two, and then I kind of re- kindle my joy watching these games and having no rooting interest um except maybe a little bit of gambling from time to time uh and god we've been certainly rewarded the last few days or anyone who's been any impartial casual nba fans have really seen the best the league has to offer maybe not the best the refs have to offer but but the league on the whole for sure yeah i mean we can get into that too i it's like really so we're talking pre-podcast, like, how are we going to structure this? Because there's been so much stuff that's happened over since our last podcast, obviously. And honestly, the like, the craziest moment, that shot today but and the play that Nick Nurse just drew up um, after the timeout um, to with 0.5 seconds left was just incredible. Like, the, the time, I don't know how you felt about uh, – taco fall being on ball which i was pretty well, like okay i was pretty okay with yeah but, i thought it was fine i mean lowry right, right. making i don't know if you heard his post-game interview that the play was drawn up it was something for van vliet or or siakam i guess there was going to be some sort of optiony 
Van Vliet maybe going coming off a off a screen and Siakam rolling. I didn't get a chance to watch it back, but he basically Lowry, who had after uh, kind of one of his trademark playoff duds uh, last in the in game two, kind of kind of had one of his better kind of reminding you of some of those finals performances from last year. Just a great game and being able to to get that pass. I, I'd have to watch it again, but getting you the fact that he got that pass over over Taco's body, his seven foot whatever body is. is wild and then OG getting that shot off in like with 0.5 on this clock like fairly easily um and then yeah. I don't know if you saw his celebration was also very cool a very understated just kind of walk walk back to the locker room yeah man what a what a cool moment not even the best buzzer beater in the in the playoffs so far I would have to give that to to the Luka Doncic uh buzzer beater against the the Clippers which feels like a millennium ago um, yeah, it, it's we didn't even crazy. mention. Yeah, I mean, this whole open, uh, we didn't even mention that the players basically went off strike in the last, yeah, in the yeah. intervening time since we've done a podcast. I didn't mean to throw everything all off. We can go back to talking about the buzzer beater. Um, well, no, but yeah, yeah I, I pretty I much mean, just gave all my thoughts at once. But yeah, so like the thing was, it was really hard for us to even just like plan on when to do do a pod because we yeah it felt like you kept no, getting pushing back past right, more and more and then all the game sevens happening so we had, felt like we had to wait till the game sevens happened and all this stuff was happening but one of the things that I did kind of want to make a distinction about was even from the the final play of the game yesterday with um, OKC versus Houston in comparison to the game today, which we just saw the game winning shot yeah. uh, by OG, like putting Shea, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander yeah, in that spot like to inbound the ball in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. It's even just like that attention to detail in terms of who's inbounding the ball. You probably want like someone like Chris Paul uh, to make the decision on who to pass the ball to in, in that yeah. pressured situation. And it, and I was like, Lowry's probably inbounding the ball just because, you know, maybe, maybe nurse kind of knows a thing or two and has, has uh, saw what happened yesterday and maybe wants to put the ball in his most trusted player. And I just thought, the execution on that play was really great just in terms of of all the all the parts working and i i mean even even yesterday that OKC Houston game they did have like a couple actions that if they executed right they would have had a, at least a shot to maybe tie it up um yeah i think it was Dennis I mean, the who went to the far that- corner and yeah, the execution by it should be noted, and both game sevens were hilariously game seventy. I mean, having sat through that Blazers Nuggets game seven last year, you don't, especially in close ones. It really down the stretch, it always gets very sloppy, and players are very tight, and it's always interesting to see who steps up and who kind of shrinks in the moment. Um, 
So, I, I mean, that, that whole last five minutes of that game was insane. I mean, you're not even mentioning the sequence. It's hard to explain, basically, if I'm trying to pull it from memory, basically. P.J. Tucker makes a float, a floater. There's like eight players flopping, like at some point, like, yeah. I, you know <laughs> what I mean? I, I can't, like Eric Gordon misses a shot. Then Chris Paul, like there's a million flopping. Chris Paul comes down the court. James Harden tries to draw a horrifically floppy charge. And then uh, CB3 short arms, kind of one of his patented in the lane, jumpery, floatery type type shot. Um, but yeah, I think uh, they, I read after the fact that that play was designed, the OKC play in question was designed for Gallo, like you were saying. But you could, I guess you can see kind of the difference and maybe Toronto being there before you, although OG wasn't a part of that last playoff run is worth something. Cause you had just all like Steven Adams trying to come to the ball, like a bunch of weird crap on that last, uh, on that last play. So I forget what your prompt was to me, but um, yeah, certainly no, I, the contrast as you pointed out was right, very right. clear. Um, but yeah, anyway, but that game seven yesterday, uh, God, and we haven't even mentioned the Bucks Heat game too. Like it's like having yeah, three, it's it's hard to even talk about it without wanting to jump around. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, wow. I I I'm just thinking about that OKC Rockets game in, in general, and it's like thinking about it has to be one of the weirder playoff game like important playoff games I can really remember you know what I mean with how right. unbelievably unbalanced it was the two MVPs were basically Robert Covington and Lou Lou Dort um, me and you just I were mean, texting back insane. and forth Lou Dort yes, like, I think everyone oh was God. like yeah, I don't need it's insane I said to you and I do think that this is a good enough point to make on on the podcast like it reminds me of like you make your when pe- if people play NBA 2K ever like you make your my player and you like you make it something weird. You're like, oh, I'm gonna make it a two guard who's like short and like very thick and muscular. Like you do it as a joke almost or whatever. And you're like a 63 overall, so you you can't really shoot or anything. And but your defense is really good because like the difficulty is not on that high. So players miss a lot more shots. And then you have like that first good game where you randomly score 30. Lou Dort basically had that in the playoff, the game seven of, of, of his rookie year. Um, pretty wild. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You're better at steering this ship than I am. What else stuck out to you about that one? Well, I think, let me just kind of, pull out like one storyline that yeah. maybe could be fascinating um, moving forward or just even like what it means for legacy purposes and things like that. Like, I think what was fascinating, at least kind of scrolling through Twitter was uh, James Harden's performance in that game seven. And he offensively at least was not there and he, like, if they lost that game, doesn't a lot of that blame go on him in terms of just... Oh, a, a, a ton of it. Uh, I mean, right. the majority of it probably does, despite Westbrook almost single-handedly losing them game six. 
right, uh, exactly. down the stretch. I, you have to still dump most of the blame on Harden. Um, and certainly it would only be, it wouldn't be like the first time this has happened. Although to give him some credit, and I'm sure you were going to go this way, Harden's, and actually I, I was listening to Dunk Don today, so I'm kind of, Harden's defense uh, basically from, from post whatever the game Paul, Chris Paul really kind of went off the most, um, Harden's defense seemed very, very um, improved or like very, he seemed very locked in on that end of the floor for the, for the last like two or three games of the series. And in game seven, I mean, if you want it, it's a bit of a cliche, but you have to give him credit for kind of doing the other things, which you don't always expect from him when he's having a bad offensive game, culminating in him having that block on Dort to, to put them in position to, to win the game. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right that he's acquitted somewhat, although I'm not completely sure because if the rocket series goes how I guess most people are assuming it's going to go, because even though they won that series, you were texting me yesterday saying like you went eight and L on your playoff picks. Like, honestly, I think you picking in the thunder in seven was despite me getting the result, right? Like arguably a more impressive call than me picking the rockets in six. Because I think most people are coming out of that series, not necessarily thinking super low of the Rockets, but I think like most people are seeing that maybe more if if it had not gone this way, more people would be going like, hey, the Rockets in this series may be frisky, which whereas I think most people are assuming it to just go go five or six now. And if if I my point being basically that Harden basically kind of got a maybe a a little bit of a lucky stroke there but i i wouldn't be surprised if if the series against the lakers doesn't go well it doesn't make that much of a difference at least as his individual legacy if that makes any sense right right i think one of the i think that interesting point that you made about harden was a lot of the ancillary things that he ended up doing in that game like the def- you know the huge block at the end obviously but he seemed engaged in the game regardless of his offensive output and that maybe it comes with a little bit of maturity knowing that although it, he's not it's not working for him offensively he has to still stay engaged to be able to help his team and that i think kind of shows the growth that he has in his game and in the in his mental maturity that you need to have when you don't have your best stuff going and i thought that was really interesting to see and you were saying before the craziness of game 7 where the best player was probably Lou Dort and uh Rocco for uh the Houston Rockets so that whenever it gets to game seven and it's so cliche to say this, you just don't really know what's going to happen. Um, even in that, in the jazz, uh, the Utah jazz uh, Denver Nuggets series, three, one down Denver comes back. And a lot of people I thought really kind of were saying that Utah, they, they need to kind of show up in this playoff series, like you were mentioning that during our first round preview podcast and um, Donovan Mitchell, I like 
he ended up like he showed up and it just like I, I mean he did necess- more than show up but yeah, yeah it wasn't yeah. it wasn't necessarily his fault that they lost at all it was just it seemed more like a lack of depth um they were missing a guy like it would have been fascinating to see if they had Bogdanovich if that would have changed yes things. Agreed. And well, I, I did want to get, I did want to, maybe we can say, keep, keep going, keep going. Just put a pin in that thought with the Bogdanovich right, right. thing. Yeah. And whether or not Bogdanovich could have made the difference there. And even, so when you were giving kudos to me about the OKC Houston, like it seemed like you had a, even though you picked uh, Denver to win and we, I think we both picked them fairly comfortably to win. Um, yeah. I think we picked them, but we, I know I picked them in six. I think, right. I think you did also. Right. The Jazz, I thought, showed a little bit more than I expected. Um, and that that was surprising to me. For sure. And I was chatting with my friend Gerald, who's like a, a Jazz fan or at least kind of partially a Jazz fan. And he was saying, and the, the thing you, you didn't yet mention was, you get this kind of all-time performance out of, not all-time in a like, but like a pretty uh, historic scoring performance out of Mitchell in the series. Um, And once again, like I'm so happy to, if you go back and listen to that message, I was not necessarily saying that Donovan Mitchell was incapable. I was just hoping that he had kind of such a performance in him because I enjoy watching him so much and and to watch him rise to the occasion was awesome. Um, But he was kind of lamenting this thing of, and and Jamal Murray had been playing really well the whole series, but kind of Mitchell has this transcendent moment, and it's almost you happen to have Jamal Murray also having a transcendent moment at the same time. And it's hard to even put my finger on, like, once again, just going back and trying to track all these series now, looking back on them is so confusing. Like, it's hard to kind of tell what swung that series. And I think the depth thing is is a fairly good good thing to point out it seemed like michael porter jr as the series went along got more and more comfortable i'm um, getting harris back for game seven and i think he played in game six as well i'm not completely sure yeah he, uh, he did obviously obviously helped and and was worth something and it kind of seemed like i think in, when they were up game i think in game six the jazz had a fairly sizable lead at one point and maybe it's just kind of a matter of running out of gas. Um, and you, but uh, I don't know. I'm kind of, I feel bad wanting to harp on the the jazz side of things, but I did want to bring up a point because you mentioned the Bogdanovich thing. Another thing we were talking about in regard to the series was like, if Utah, if the jazz get walked over, do they look to blow it up? And I wonder if them taking this game to set, taking this to a game seven, even though they blew a three, one lead and it's I'm sure an extremely disappointing result does going to seven kind of, and you saw kind of in that game seven, how Donovan Mitchell was kind of acting and how much it meant to him and how, how the kind of, it seemed like the bond was a little bit, stronger than than the media had been giving it credit for and you wonder if you're like Dennis Lindsay and this Utah ownership group and stuff you don't want to blow a team up if you don't have to you're a small market franchise so my my long-winded point is saying I wonder if getting to seven and having success without Bogdanovich kind of gives them the license to try and 
patch up the fences where they need to be mended and you can kind of convince yourself that like hey maybe we can we can this team as constructed is actually worth giving it another shot yeah and i i think that's the big point to make in terms of not wanting to blow it up just for the sake of blowing it up especially for a small market team like utah um where it's not like they can actively recruit free agents to come to to the uh to the mountainous terrain of utah i I don't know if it's mountainous out there but um it's it's kind of really hard to even envision people going there willingly um as a free agent so if you have a fairly good team and they're they are a good team it's going to be difficult to foresee, you know, difficult to foresee a, a, a team better than this within five years if they blew it up. Um, so I don't really see that happening. And I think they're curious to see how Bogdanovich ends up performing in a playoff series like this. And that's something that I'd be excited to see next uh, next summer or next year. Um, in terms of what happens in the playoffs for the Jazz, um, but on Denver side of things, like being yeah, able I to come to... back three-one, yeah, like still it's it's impressive. But one of the things that I do rem- uh, do remember texting you was, does the three-one thing matter as much being not having to travel as much or not you know and being in the bubble in comparison to? Uh, I'm I'm using air quotes, a normal playoff series, or is it like it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily easier, but it's, I think there's just less variables they have to worry about. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know about the less variables thing and it's a small sample size so far, but it does seem as if uh, even with, we'll see what happens with the Raptors Celtic series as it plays out in the Bucks series and stuff. It seems like the playoff playoff series generally have like sort of a flow to them. You know what I mean? And it's dictated by home court advantage. Like, you know, okay, they're home and they go up 2-0 and like, okay, what? Or it's like, or there's a 1-1 split and you're going back and, oh, we got to get one on. the. It seems like these series have had a lot more of a weird herky-jerky momentum where momentum can shift within a series a lot faster and a lot more drastically like case in point both of the number one seeds losing their first games only to then win four straight you know what I mean like it seems like there have been like the momentum can shift a lot quicker and and a lot more uh and kind of a lot more uh more out of nowhere so and and the, when you texted me that I agreed and I thought I said that I thought it reminded me of hockey like it actually would have right, really right. been fascinating if the Raptors had lost tonight. Because I was going to say to you, like, doesn't it feel like if a team were ever going to come back from three zero in in a playoff, it would be in this environment? I was kind of mention that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so I definitely do agree uh, agree with you on that. Now, another thing I was thinking about, though, as kind of we maybe can take the the jazz and the, I mean the nuggets and the, and the rockets in tandem here, the Denver Clipper games going on right now, it's actually tied at the end of the first quarter. But um, what do you make of this? I've been thinking a lot today about 
fatigue, not as it pertains to travel now, but as it pertains to the cumulative amount of games played that some teams will have more than others. You saw a couple nights ago Jamal Murray having this kind of meme-worthy moment where he's getting interviewed by Scott Van Pelt, and he's like, well, you play on Thursday, and Jamal's like, oh, we play on Thursday. Like, we only have one day. Um, Do you think that lack of the fact that both of those teams went to a Game 7, do you think that will have any impact or where it'll kind of come at? Like, how are you thinking about all that? And did you think any of those, either of those teams had a, a shot in their respective series to begin with? There has to be some effect, um, for sure, just in terms of being a little tired. I'm sure a lot of these guys are fatigued. Just, you yeah. know, they've talked about the mental aspect with a lot of the um, things um, regarding, you know, the racial tensions in, in America and sure. things like that. Yes, that um, emotional but, fatigue is a good thing to mention. Right. But also the, the physical st- side of things, I think, is a lot less just because they don't have to travel. I, I think if they yeah. had to travel, it, like, I don't think a lot of the normal, you know, casual fan under, understands how how hard, like, getting off a plane at four in the morning after they yeah. flew a red eye is extremely difficult to have, even though they would maybe have an extra travel day where they would have two days in between games, you know, in between game three or two and three when they're traveling um, to a new city where they would have an extra day off usually. I think Mm. a lot of those things kind of mitigate mitigate each other and they're kind of canceled out in some ways. But, and then I guess the second part of that question in terms of do I think any of these teams, whether it be Denver or Houston, has a shot? To me, it's kind of weird. I think while if I had to put my money on it, I would say Houston has a shot. I'm not saying it's a, a huge shot by any means, but for – I don't know. For some reason, this OKC team played Houston really well, and they're super scrappy. Um, I guess the the hope is the Lakers, if they have trouble just guarding those guards, and they had some, especially in that first game against Portland, they had some trouble dealing with with uh, CJ and with Dame. And I wonder if that carries over a little bit into this Houston series. I'm not going to say Houston's going to win, but it's possible that Houston makes it closer than a lot of people would say in terms of it going five. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I I could see. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's possible. Honestly, I think it's possible that the thing I was going to point out was that after the first round, even you can even lump the Bucks in there as well. I don't feel like any of those teams at the top, like, yes, the Lakers did handle the Blazers fairly well. And, yes, the Clippers got all they could get offensively from that Mavs team, like one of the great – I mean, they underratedly now, like this, that, they have to be one of the greatest offensive teams of all time. 
and it'll be interesting to see next year. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if I told you this on text or not, just to have a quick sidebar on the Mavs. Um, I don't know if I told you this or not, but it kind of reminded me it's different because it's more based on kind of drive and kick as opposed to kind of uh, Golden State's ball movement, Curry-orchestrated offense. But the Ma- watching the Mavs offense in the playoffs against this Clipper team, who is ostensibly supposed to be a really, really good defensive team, it reminded me, and I know they were the number one offensive team all year, it reminded me of, like, when Golden State started to, like, you know how they, like, in that first Steve Curry year, all of a sudden it, like, just shifted, and it was like, holy crap, like, these, this is a juggernaut. I kind of got some of those vibes with the with the Mavs to some extent, and I'm really extent. I'm really interested to see where their place in the NBA landscape is going into next season. But setting that aside, the oh, point sorry. I was can trying, I respond to that too? Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go for it. No, one, that's fine. one point about yeah, and even one point about Dallas. They were missing Kristaps Porzingis for yes half the series and they still stuck it out till six games which is really impressive against I would say um a decent amount of like a majority of people's final finals picks in terms of having the Clippers winning the finals so even having Chris stops not playing and for them to push it to six games and make it really interesting in the games that they did lose um, really impressed. I was super impressed. If Kristaps can and you're stay finally healthy, coming around on Luka Doncic, which I appreciate. Like, yeah, after, I mean, after a couple years of of doubting and and kind of hating a little bit, I, I think after that buzzer beater, you text me and you're uh, like, "Man, I I finally ready to. I'm finally ready to admit that Luka Doncic is pretty good." Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I was kind of like, man, I always thought Trey was the guy in that in that deal, but man, I think Luke no, you were like Marvin yeah. Bagley. You were a big Marvin Bagley guy. I wa- Marvin, yeah, Marvin. Actually, Bagley. you did kind of like Marvin. You kind of did like Marvin. Bagley, I, I but... did kind of like Marvin Bagley, but um, no, yeah, everyone knows my true love for Luca, yeah. and it's been it's been incredible. And I just want to give a shout out. I just yeah. want to give a shout out because we have to move on. Mike Breen is my favorite, like probably announcer in any sport in this po- at this point. And I'm a big fan of Mike. Br- Obviously, everyone knows Bang, the greatest call probably in sports. But I'm a big fan of like Mike Breen hierarchies of phrases he uses and things he says. And it's kind of funny because I was on vacation in in the Outer Banks a month or so ago, and my friend during during cornhole. He would use he was he would jokingly say he would jokingly imitate Curry the the line from when Curry made his buzzer beater uh, Curry for three bang bang and I was like dude I know Mike Breen like he doesn't say bang twice he only says bang once and uh, I looked it up and I was completely wrong he did double say bang, bang twice yeah, for that for that bang. Curry shot and. To see the double bang get pulled out again for the Luca for the Luca buzzer beater was was a great was an incredible moment. Um, but uh, shifting to this to my point from before, if, if unless you had something else you wanted to say no. on Luca or the Mavs, um, shifting to kind of my point is just like I don't 
I'm not really even going to be surprised if the Clippers series gets to six. Like, I know people mm-hmm. aren't expecting it, and it's not necessarily me saying anything about this Denver team, although I think uh, Jokic will have be – it'll be an interesting matchup there, giving that – it'll be a nice test run almost for AD in a way, even though they are just drastically different players in the play – in their in their style, seeing how – the Clippers react to to an offense that involves a, a big more although obviously Chris Epps is a big but just kind of a different a type but you know anyway kind of uh wow I lost my train of thought a little bit there but basically the point I'm trying to make is even though I don't necessarily think too highly of Denver although they certainly have their have their moments and their spots I'm not going to be surprised if either of those series go a little bit longer than we expect. And it has as much to do with those two teams as anything. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. No, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's, to me, I rationalize it this way, especially with the way Murray's playing, um, um, coming off of that series against Utah, where him and Donovan Mitchell were going, on a battle between like who can score more points uh, per night, which was insane. Yeah. What is you give one win probably for Jokic going off. And then you go, you give one win for Jamal Murray going off. Yeah, and that then makes sense. it's probably like, it's probably six games to the Clippers. That's how I, Oh, Oh, it. Oh. And by the way, I, yeah. I wanted to on the fatigue thing, cause I do have a theory on it and it comes from watching the Blazers is that if the cumulative fatigue of only having like the day off of rest or whatever sinks in, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens later on in these series. Like you get to kind of a, a two one or or two two, and then you just like run out of gas and lose the last two straight. I wouldn't be mm-hmm. surprised if something like that happened because that seemed to be what happened with the Blazers. They expended a lot of this energy making the play-in game and winning the play-in game. And then they kind of, I felt like that, although they certainly, there were certainly weaknesses that were exposed and we've already done our kind of blazer all-season previews. So I don't see the see the necessity the trip to hash over some of those topics. But um, it did seem as if they kind of win game one and then they really just didn't have the, didn't have the juice anymore. Um so I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened in one of these Rockets or Denver series as well. Um, I mean, ironically, I, I think it's interesting to turn now to the East and say, right, right. even the, uh, the Clippers and the, and the Lakers, uh, like the teams that are playing the best right now, to me, I mean, we'll see what happens in the, it's not really fair to say this because maybe it's recency bias, but, but the Heat, are looking like the one of the best teams in terms of overall form right now, taking a, a two nothing lead on the Bucks and leaving my finals uh my finals prediction in, in dire straits. What what are you what are you thinking about watching that watching that series? Yeah, and I, I mean there's one overarching theme I kind of want I'm curious to see what the NBA does in terms of both of these East series or going there basically two two games ahead of these west series um yeah so i'm curious to see if the east series ends up um finishing up fairly quickly uh whether or not they start 
like in the like pretty much at game five or game six of these uh, Western Conference series, just as the scheduling aside. But one of the things that I was texting you about yesterday uh, during game two of Miami and uh, Milwaukee, I mean, obviously the end of that game was just insane having, you know, basically it kind of reminded me of a soccer soccer game at the end, like with PKs. And I think it was Tyler hero crouching down with, um, maybe, maybe yeah, that was Kelly a real moment. Yeah. Maybe it was Kelly Olenek where Butler has these two free throws to win it. And, uh, they were crouching down, like he was about to take a, uh, a penalty kick and it was pretty kind of, it was just weird to see a game, finish like that with no time left um yeah i mean kind of, i wanted to we can do you I want to get into the foul calls or do you want me to get into yeah, well, like yeah. the overarching no, theme of oh we go for your overarching theme and then we can go back to it if you want but i do want to make a point about the officials at some point okay got it um so the thing that i did i wanted to kind of bring attention to was even though Giannis is this star, like superstar player, and he's, it looks like he's going to be winning his second MVP. I don't think it's been announced yet. Um, is there, there's like a concern as to whether or not he can take over games just because it seems like it's hard for him to initiate the offense um, and basically be like like coach bud's system isn't hey Giannis, take the ball from the three-point line do your thing we're gonna iso you and basically clear out that's just not really in his skill set yet in terms of his ball handling skills yeah um so it seems like eric bledsoe missed the first game in this series so it seemed like that was a little bit missing in that in that first game where a lot of it was dependent on Chris Middleton and in game two, Eric Bledsoe initiating offense um, and then Giannis being the, the pick and roll man, whether he, whether he was diving to the rim or popping out um, after they played pick and roll with him. And I wonder if that ultimately becomes the Bucks' downfall in that Giannis isn't this ball dominant player on offense. And that, yeah. And, and that, those are the problems offensively. And they, and then defensively, they were talking about when Jimmy Butler goes off for 40 points in game one, why aren't they putting Giannis on him as the reigning defensive player of the year? And even in that, I don't like, while I think Giannis is a great on ball defender, it seemed like a lot of Milwaukee's plans were to kind of have him play free safety a little bit yeah. and help off of help off of uh, dribble penetration, um, especially because of the deadliness of the three point of of Miami's three point shooting, um, kind yeah. of spacing the floor with Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero. Oh, Jay Crowder, I mean, he shoots threes. I'm not sure if he's shooting them effectively. Well, no, but he's but, shooting. He is shooting them effectively in this series, right. and I think that is that is a, a huge point of, along with the play of Goran Dragic. I mean, before the uh, 
before the playoffs, you were as you were going on your run of saying every team was one guy short. Um, who knew that Goran Dragic would be the one guy that you know what I mean? They needed. It's it's kind right. of been wild to watch. Um, and you made a great point about the defense, and I kind of wanted to use it to transition into something as we're kind of more harping on the Bucks here, which is which is fine. I think that's uh, a conversation everyone is having right now. Um, it's, it's easy and I don't blame you and it's justified for kind of focusing on the Giannis and his limitations aspect of it. But when you began to discuss the defense and you start to put it at kind of all these problems together, you don't, you kind of like, and listening to podcasts and reading today, it's more and more to, to me, I'm, I'm starting to look at Budenholzer as the problem. Mm. You're starting to just kind of go. I'm starting to kind of just think like, man, this dude does not know how to do anything other than run his system. And when his system works, isn't working. I mean, you mentioned the not uh, putting him on Butler thing, which I definitely brought up in the game one. Butler didn't even score that many in game two. But there are a lot Mm -hmm. of these, and it's not like I'm breaking down film or stuff, but uh, I I just know these, uh, the Bucks don't like to switch they give up a lot of above-the-break threes, and those things are killing them, and they don't know how to not do them now that the Heat, and give a lot of credit to Spolstra as well, kind of seem to be just going like, all right, here's what you do, and we're going to craft our game plan to to kind of get into those uh, chips in the armor or whatever. And, and offensively, I mean, you mentioned this last night, and I kind of meanly I, – I didn't dismiss it, but I, I I was mad just because the Bucks were playing so shitty and making my playoffs so bad, and I had <laughs> bet on them two games in a row. Um, right. But you mentioned the lack of uh, – the, the lack of um, Malcolm Brogdon, and I do think it, it is worth something because at the very least, if they had him, you would have another playmaker to – the th- interesting thing about the Bucks offense, and I didn't realize it until I was listening to Lowe and Kevin Artivis discuss it today, is they're actually not an incredible, sh- as incredible of a three-point shooting team as you would expect them to be. And they also don't have as much playmaking as you would expect them to have. And the lack of playmaking, especially down the stretch of game two, was like illuminating. Like there's some fucking Keystone Cops level possessions on offense where it's like not good like horrible turnovers like just like not looking at what not uh not kind of knowing what to do and to hook it around to your point kind of to me I always thought of the of the Bucks offense as kind of transition obviously first of all and then kind of their offense being one that like is it at its best in the flow of the game when you're kind of having this bing, bing, bing passing and, and stuff like that. And in the playoffs, that's just harder. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying anything novel here. So I think that does hook around to your point about Giannis and yeah, having Giannis as a, as a role guy seems to be effective. seems to be like a thing that works for them. But uh, the, what was pointing out yesterday that like the heat seemed fairly prepared for that too. So it's you kind of I, I was complaining to you about like th- most teams have something that like 
they have their thing they go to, right? Like, it doesn't have to be an ISO even. Like, Lillard, Damian Lillard, at the end of the game, won't always go flat, you know, 1-4. He'll It's like pick and roll with Nurkic, right? And you know that's a thing you can kind of go to that gets you a point, like, you know, one point four points per possession. I'm not sure what that play is for, for the Bucks and like they're running out of time to kind of uh figuring it out figure it out. And kind of yeah, turning to the right. heat side of things, uh I, if you wanna say something about that you can No no I, I was gonna just pose another question to you if you're uh coach Bud here in this next game, are you like what is your go to thing? Is it is it just a, a ton of Middleton Giannis pick and roll. Um, I think I maybe getting the pick and roll action off of whoever the whoever um whoever's Duncan Robinson is guarding um, or Tyler Hero is guarding. That is is something they don't. I think that's something they don't do nearly as often as they should. Um, and because the Pacers, as awful as that series was for the most part, a lot of their best moments seemed to be when it was like, all right, just, yeah, just put Duncan Robinson or, or a hero especially in a, in a pick and roll and go at him. And I think they're not doing that nearly enough, especially kind of those, especially like something along the lines of, I mean, I guess this will be more draw, but having Giannis be the ball handler and a guy like George Hill or, you know, Middleton or whoever set a screen. And I also think, uh, I mean, it's kind of an, the Corver thing has been interesting because he's played well in those first couple of games, but then mm-hmm. he kind of, how much can you get out of him, especially defensively? But, and, and once again, I'm cribbing this from low a little bit, kind of this idea of Giannis and four shooters, basically, maybe getting a little bit more Marvin Williams uh, in the mix, I, I think could be useful. Because another thing, not to just keep pounding the drum, because I did say this to you during a text, Zach Lowe mentioned it as well, the Connaughton, DiVincenzo, like in the regular season, it's like, ooh, they're getting all these contributions from these guys. Which is great, and I I love Pat Connaughton, but then you get to the playoffs and they're just getting helped off of, and it yeah. you know what I I don't know if you can, kind I think you just kind of pat and this is another Giannis is not still not playing all forty eight minutes of these games, and like I think it's time that like the things I'm mentioning all involve like just kind of doing shit they haven't done yet. And I think mm-hmm. it's now is the time to be pulling out all those stops. If you, I mean, uh, if they don't pull it out now, it's it's the series is over. Basically. Because the tough so, thing, the tough, the interesting thing is, and the reason I think this conversation is also so hard is maybe you can, as we'll eventually turn to the Toronto series. I think maybe in opposition to that series, to some extent, this series you can't look at the Heat and really say like oh, well, they're just getting super-duper hot or, like, oh, well, they're playing unsustainably well. Like, yes, maybe there is a little bit of that, like Jay Crowder hitting threes and, like, Hero and Robinson both having great games, respectively, in one and two. But to me, they're pretty much playing their game. You know what I mean? And it seems like they're just really executing their game plan well. So... I like it's hard for us. It's hard for me to like really go to the drawing board and come up with these things because they're just also 
playing super solidly and not showing a lot of a lot of uh weaknesses to go at. I think like eventually it's going to come down to like that leaving Crowder open kind of leaving or and attacking the weakest defender uh defender type thing but if that's an, is is that enough we we will see right and i think one of the there there's a couple things that i wanted to talk about in in regards to like you were saying miami's playing the way they've pretty much played all year and they look better than the bucks at this point it's not it's not even the fact the Bucks are playing super bad or anything at all either. Uh, the first game, I think they shot it extremely well from three. I think they shot like 40-something percent from three. Um, it, so it's not like they're necessarily playing terrible basketball. Um, and Miami just looks better. And I think, you know, one of the trends that you kind of mentioned are like the philosophies defensively um, of Coach Bud and what's been intriguing, I think, for a lot of maybe analytics people and things like that is nowadays, like anything but the three, anything, we're not giving up threes. We're basically having people filter and have them step inside the arc and shoot a long two or a mid-range two, ideally. Um, and they've given up a lot of above-the-break threes, like you were mentioning, and Miami can knock those down. Like, every person yeah. um, on the floor to varying degrees of success, and maybe you take you take your risks, you start taking your risks with uh, Crowder and things like that. But they, they were they, – really harped on defending the lane and when you leave those above the break threes open for good shooting for good shooters like Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero and I mean you Goran Dragic has has played extremely well Jimmy Butler it's this team is super versatile in the way they play and they like a lot of the parts that they have are super interchangeable um, that if a guy, one guy is struggling, you're not going to get too much of a drop off. If you let's say put Tyler hero in for Duncan Robinson, or you yeah. put um, Andre Iguodala for Jay Crowder. And I think that's where it becomes really fascinating depth wise in terms of my theory of all these teams being one, one guy, short this Miami team has looked like the most complete team in terms of depth I would say in the east thus far um and now like shifting over maybe to Toronto and Boston unless you had anything else to add about Miami uh Milwaukee shift away um like obviously off the top we talked about the shot that OG and Novi made but like Toronto was very close to going three games down and that like they were pretty much like pretty much three games down and I was like well my finals pick is done already in the east um and then and Novi makes that makes that shot and maybe that's the catalyst in terms of this changing the series um for Toronto what are your thoughts about just maybe some of the some of the rotations that have been played or maybe just what you think about 
how Boston's played without Gordon Hayward, which I think was like, for me, at least one of those things prior to the series starting when he pretty much was, is going to be out for this second round. Me, me thinking like that's the one swing or X factor that's going to swing it into Toronto's favor and Boston's looked really good. And I do want to toot my own horn about uh, Jason Tatum kind of redeeming yeah, you himself, that. You redeeming that. himself this year in terms of a lot. Of, I think he, a lot of people were questioning whether or not he was going to fulfill his potential, uh, whether oh, yeah. or not he, whether or not he is overrated coming into this into this year and he's really showed consistently that he is on the rise and is potentially um a multi uh year all-star um performer for years to come and yeah felt vindicated by just kind of like seeing that out and just having a lot of people being a little bit too hot or cold on him um and yeah he's looked really he's looked fairly solid in this series like the leader doesn't look shy like scared at all in terms of taking responsibility in the series um Kemba's looked had had a few moments as well in the first couple of games um what what were your thoughts uh, just like so far about this series I mean, with the Celtics, I mean, you brought up Jalen Brown. I mean, you brought up uh, Jason Tatum, and I wanted to. Yeah, that's one where you're com- you are were completely right. Like, I feel like we've both had a nice percentage of things we of good takes on this podcast, as it were. But I, 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 I mean, I'm trying to think of more like, of a. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like egregious bad takes that we've had, and I can't. Maybe... I mean, these our picks in the East could end up being egregious bad takes, but it's right, not like right. going out on an i. It's not like going out on an island type of uh, type of thing. In fact, I was going to say, I think they said the when the Bucks lost last night that it was the first time since like the '80s where the number one and two seed in a in a like semifinal both went down to uh so it's kind of bad luck in in some ways uh it it seems but i was always more of a tatum skeptic than you were and to be frank with you like i certainly respect there are just players who i i mean i was talking about this with one of with my cousins with westbrook there are just certain styles of play i tend to not gravitate towards as much and tatum's kind of like score and but I don't know. It's hard to explain his style. But like, it, I, just aesthetically, I've never loved it, and I wondered if the, I wonder if that factored into some of my um, some of my analysis of him somewhat. But I was also just kind of of this idea of like he's not very efficient. He doesn't get to the line. You know, he settles for twos, and it seems like he's excised a lot of those demons from his game it seems like he's really improved a lot of those aspects and become more of a well-rounded player which 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 I appreciate but the thing about the Celtics that struck that's kind of struck me as you asked me about like the rotations and stuff like that it's not really so much it's kind of like the opposite of that where like yes have they gotten good 
have they gotten good minutes out of out of the Time Lord Robert Williams and Spurs and yeah. stuff like that? Like has Tice played well? Great, but to me it's more just like every and we talked about this even before. I mean before Hayward got hurt. In to not to I I know it sounds like I'm making fun of you and I half am in your one guy short thing. We mentioned yeah. the Celtics and we're like, okay, you have these six guys and with uh, or you have these. I guess we would have said five guys and now it's really just four and like, okay, who else to me with the Celtics? It's like all of those four guys have played really, really well. And that's been enough. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of funny to contrast that with the Raptors where it was always the point was that they had these few guys who all just did their jobs and played really, really solid. And to me, it's kind of a a non-sexy take, but it's like, okay, the Celtics core on balance outplayed the Raptor core on balance. Like Marcus Smart, he was not, he was like eh in this game and Tatum was eh in this game as well. But Marcus Smart has played really, really well. I know a lot of the light and shine will have gone to Tatum, but Smart had played really, really well, especially on the defensive end, doing a lot of things. Like if if I'm a Raptor fan or whatever, and Siakam's posting up against Tatum, uh, I'm sorry. Actually, really almost against, okay, Siakam's going up against Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown has Mm -hmm. absolute clamps on him today. I love Jalen. Like that's the thing about like the aesthetic, whatever. I just, love Jalen Brown so much more than Tatum, even though I know Tatum's a better player. Uh, but, okay, Siakam's going up against Jalen Brown. Like, I'm not really feeling great about that. Siakam's going up against Marcus Smart. You wish you could feel good about that, but you, you can't. He's going up against Tatum. Like, Tatum's a solid defender as well. It's kind of just these these different guys who are all kind of doing their doing their bits and pieces every game um yeah so I I've I've just been really impressed because they were always a team that like I guess them and the Heat and maybe that kind of and maybe not watching enough of them biased me in some ways as I always gravitated towards like the Raptors especially but it just seems like they're like they're really it's just another like I don't know what to say other than all those guys have been really really solid. I, maybe you have a, a a a better insight than I do in in that regard. Especially like to me, I'm kind of more Toronto focused, especially in those first couple of games and and seeing cracks and kind. Of, and I mentioned this before before the playoffs, kind of this idea of this kind of how rarely those. Uh, Detroit Pistony teams with no real center of gravity on offense, how rare it is for them to actually make a final. And I thought we saw some, some of those concerns emerge in the first few games. I mean, how do you want to react to any of that? I've been talking for long enough now. No. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the points that I did want to make specifically about the Celtics was you know, game two, they're able to grind it out and get this win or get the win. And then game three, obviously lose the huge buzzer beater. But like even Kemba making some big shots down down the stretch in his first playoff yes. experience. Kemba's played and, very well as well. Like he's 
shown up to the point where you don't have to worry about, oh, this is his first playoffs. Like, even though he's a vet, he he's never been in a spot like this, and he's been able to show up fairly well uh, during the series. And I think that was something that maybe I had my eye on, whether or not Kemba would show up. And he's kind of shown through his UConn days how he's a big game type of player making big shots and isn't scared to take any of those, uh, take any of that responsibility on. And that's been, I would say if you're a Boston fan, super encouraging to see, especially after maybe the Kyrie debacle they had last year. And, and like the, and the young development of the wings, like obviously Brown and Tatum have been, really good just in terms of both being fairly solid two-way players um now shifting over to toronto i think the the detroit pistons kind of analogy of the you know i think it was 04 around that range where they had chauncey billups rip hamilton is a pretty apt comparison in terms of all really solid players on the floor but no one that you would prototypically think about or stereotypically think about as like the star player that gets the last shot when the shot clock is winding down and you're like, okay, we need a Kobe or we need like a heart hardens not like, but we need this superstar player to take this shot. Like there really isn't that. And what's been fascinating to me has been, um, Lowry, Lowry has struggled a little bit in this series to me. Um, like he yeah. doesn't like he's kind of reared that before the before the finals last year. He had like this reputation of is he going to be able to to come through in the big situations and and maybe that was a little bit hidden because of Kawhi, but this he hasn't looked great. And I think it's strange, but Fred Van Vliet's been the guy that has gotten, I would say a lot of the offensive output or like offensive looks like, Hey, here's the ball, uh, Fred, like you're going to go ISO here. You're going to kind of take this guy off the dribble. And that for me has been a little surprising um like the Siakam thing I think you did a pretty good job outlining like the troubles there in terms of um who's guarding him and the different looks that he gets and and like all the other guys are solid players but they're like players that have a specific role like OG's not the guy you give the ball to and like ask him to break defenders down neither is neither is Gasol anymore or Serge Ibaka so it seems like if Lowry's struggling, Van Vliet is going to be getting a lot of that responsibility on the ball. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. And that Van Vliet, in, in his moments, like you think about him in that, in that finals run a couple of years ago, and I think when they were really humming a year ago, and when they were really humming in the regular season, I think a lot of it was those Van Vliet contributions booing things. I mean, the thing at the end of the day, it's like kind of another one of my like, come on, man, step up things. It's uh, not to harp on it, but it, because the thing, it's Siakam to me. Uh, Cause the thing is like, you compare the, it's not like 
we I made this Pistons analogy with the Raptors, but it's like, okay, the Raptors all-star, I believe, this year. What Like, you have Lowry and Siakam, who are two fringe all-NBA guys, basically. And then on the Celtics, you have Tatum and Walker, who are two fringe all-NBA guys. So, ostensibly, that, like, don't Siakam and Lowry deserve that? like level of kind of criticism and they should be carrying that much of the load offensively as well to me, like, but I, to me, I guess my gaze drifts towards Siakam because at this point we kind of know what Lowry is. Mm-hmm. Like he is a effective offensive player, but kind of more in that running the offense, you know, and shooting some maybe threes off the dribble or spotting up when, when you kind of let Van Vliet have, have the run of things. Siakam's the one you should be – I mean, I guess it's kind of maybe the Giannis – I'm kind of talking in circles here. Maybe it's the Giannis debacle to some extent where it's like he's more of a kind of like in transition and slashing and stuff like that. But I, I thought he had this year shown kind of a more well-rounded offensive game, and I, I've been a little disappointed. It doesn't look like he's really been able to kind of kind – of, find his spots as much and and the Gasol thing is always weird right like well he always has like six points in these games or whatever and I'm you're like aren't you sp- I, I guess that's just who he is at this point I don't know this is just like pure sour grapes they're losing so I'm complaining about all the things they've always done but to me it's kind of like I guess it's almost a similar thing to the Bucks thing where it's like at this point, I don't think there are any huge adjustments they could make. Like, maybe defensively, Nurse needs to try try a little bit more stuff. It looked like maybe he did that today and and uh, and uh, and frustrated Tatum a little bit more. Um, but on the offensive side of the ball, there's not much they can do to me, right? It's kind of just like keep doing your thing and just hope you make shots because I think in the game. In game one and two, they didn't shoot higher than like 33% from three in any of those games. Um, mm-hmm. So part of it and part of it is, and they, whereas today, I think their shot making was just, just was a lot better. Um, and they only shot 31% in, in this game as well. But I think in, oh no, that's, I'm looking at the Celtics. They only shot 32%. But I think in, it, they, I, I, in at least the second half, it, it was a little bit better at least. Um, but I, I, it, to me, it's not as much about those specific adjustments as much as, I don't know, better execution or just hoping you're, you're going to be better on, on more nights going forward. And we'll see how the momentum of this game affects things. Um, I guess my overall question I wanted to ask you, as as I'm quite obviously running out of steam talking about these teams here, do you think the Raptors or the Bucks win their series, respectively? I think we should uh, be forced to have to. I think we should be forced to I'm, have to either ditch our teams or or not. You know, I'm still in on the Raptors. The Bucks one is a little bit tougher for me to. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, I you know if the Raptors went three zero down, it would be tough to say, but I think the Raptors are still in it in terms of just being. They've played two close games in the past two games. Like that game one was not great for them, but that you know game two they were still in it. Um, in that game, they had a big 
you know, they had a lead during that game and they pretty much just gave it up uh, going into the fourth. Uh, they were up eight points. So it's not like they've, they're yeah, necessarily agreed. like getting blown out per se. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's outplayed. Yeah. I think that's like why it's hard for me to best. really criticize them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do agree with you on the Siakam point. Like that, I think is going to be that's the guy that needs to really step up for the Raptors for them to win the series. And he hasn't played um, up to par or up to what he's kind of um, been expected to uh, play this past year. And uh, that that potential is unfulfilled at this point. Um, but yeah, the Bucks is a little bit more it's really hard for me to root for that or for me to think that they're going to be able to come back just with the way Spolstra has the heat playing um and I and I am not as encouraged by some of the way that the Bucks have been like how and uh, you and you said, like, I don't think the Bucks are necessarily playing that bad. And I agree with you in spots, but, like, contrasting the last two games, as you were saying, like, the Bucks have been down 10 in the fourth quarter of both of those games. And that's pretty yeah. concerning, right? Mm-hmm. Like, once again, we're not even – like, that last – we kind of gave short shrift to the end of the Bucks game, which is fine, and I want to hit the refs before we probably move on to the – to the boycotts to strike stuff to close yeah, out yep. everything. But um but um the end of the game they're not even there if they don't have a frantic comeback and a bad foul call anyway. So it's right. not like, yeah I'm kind of scared as well. But um I'm I'm not gonna ditch my pick so I'll I, I'm gonna miraculous sub hope they they come back. And so like I, <sighs> God, because if they lose in like five or something like that, it's really, really bad, right? Like, like for the future of that team, possibly yeah, catastrophically the, bad. Yeah, the, the whole Giannis speculation said, is, and 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 I think that's kind of why. I, if you went back and listened, I think you'll remember me saying this from the Bucks perspective it was kind of because I thought anything other than them not getting out of the east was going to be very problematic and it seems like we're headed in that direction so uh yeah we'll see yeah and the Raptors I don't know I think it's going to go to seven at this point and and it's a coin flip I I really don't have no idea I I see it that way I see it that way too it's just yeah, no reason for me to get off at this point. Um, yeah, and I think I yep. see, it, see it being a long series as well. So let's get into the rest stuff because, you yeah. know, can you remember a time where it's been this bad? Like, has no, it been, I mean, in I your was... opinion, has it been bad, first of all? And to me, it's been bad. But for you, do you think it's been bad in terms of the calls um just the calls in extremely big spots to kind of um to change games and change like change the way like games have turned out what are your thoughts on all this and here's here's what yeah what i'm initially thinking about actually what I'm initially because the fact of the matter is, and Kevin Ardovitz was kind of talking about this on the pod today, so this is inspired by him somewhat. 
over the last few years in the NBA, as like replay has become more involved and like now you have the challenge and stuff like that, the NBA and other and people have always complained, have complained about this for a long time. So I don't think it's fair to act like it's just happening now, but we've kind of been trending in this direction where like replay and the refs have seemed to become more and more a part of the game as it were, like, even when you're listening to people do like play by play and like the discussion about the refing and was this call good or blah, 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 seems to die. It feels like this is where like refing jumped the shark in the NBA, as it were, like and reach the NFL point. You know how in the NFL, like it just like, it feels like you're constantly just looking at replays or like, was this pass interference or like, was he Mm -hmm. down? Like, blah, blah, blah. It feels like we've kind of reached that point in the, in the, in the NBA uh, to some extent. And like the thing I think about when you were asking me about like, what's defining refing in the bubble, it's the fist pump technicals in big spots. And you want, and it's easy. Like if I'm a Colin, Colin Cowherd type, or if I were like Jay Williams on get up or whatever, you'd be like the refs in the bubble, like are seizing, making it all about them or something. And I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And the thing I'm starting to wonder about is like, like, so let's take the two, let's take the fist pumping and let's take the, the two and the two fouls at the end of the, of the Bucks game. Because I think they can kind of go together in a way. The Gorn Dragic foul is just oh, and did you see that the last two minute report said they were both good calls? I there you go. I was just and it makes me wonder because like the Giannis foul is what it is. Like to me, the Giannis foul is more of just like okay, maybe it is a foul, but you don't call it in that spot. Whereas the Goran yeah. Dragic foul, I was like, I, I just feel like it's pretty don't much unconscionable. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. So the last two-minute report, I'm really all over the place here because I do want to get back to my my uh, my true point. But I was telling you that I don't know if you had the sound on or not, but after that Goran Dragic foul gets called, they bring in Steve Javi, who's like, the, oh yeah, he's at the ref center. He was a ref, and he's supposed to be explaining whether it was a good call or not. And he says it's a good call. And then the last two-minute report comes out, and it's a good call. And it makes me wonder, just like, is there some sort of like league-wide kind of like, like, are they living on a different planet truly than the rest of us, or is there like some league-wide mandate where they're being told to emphasize these things and they're just really sticking to the book and it's not their fault, or are they truly? Is it truly just that bad and they're not even willing to admit that they're doing badly? Is an interesting question. But setting that aside, with the fist pumps. And then those two fouls, which, like, let's even characterize them charitably and say, like, okay, they were fouls, but they're not fouls that would be called in your average NBA playoff game. And I would say right. that about these texts as well um, to, to just – if people don't know what I'm talking about. There have been a lot of these playoff texts, and there was one in the uh, – Chris Paul had one, right? Uh, and Jason Tatum. who else had one? The one you texted me about. Who? I think it was Tatum. Oh, Tatum. Tatum. Yeah, yeah, Tatum. No, yeah, Chris Paul, and then it was Tatum in the last game. Where basically something happens, they get called for a foul or don't get called for a foul, and they swing their arm basically at, to say, like, you missed, like, in frustration, not even at the ref right. necessarily, and they get teed up. And the Tatum one was so – it was like two minutes, under two minutes to go in, like, 
uh, a tie or one possession ball game. It was absurd. It was absolutely absurd. And what I'm wondering is, my long-winded point is, like, in a normal playoff game, there's all the shit. Like, the the atmosphere is, is a huge part of everything, right? There's the crowd going. And, like, in a spot like that, the crowd would either be booing or making noise in some way. Or, you know... On the, there'd be so much other crap going on that that the ref wouldn't be able to necessarily focus on on this one thing. Or they'd even, you could even argue subconsciously they know like was that game was supposed to be in Milwaukee, right? They know mm-hmm. that if they call that foul on Giannis or whatever, they're getting booed off the court. You know what I mean? Right. And I wonder if without all of that outside stimulus, if they're more locked in or they're more prone to make calls where they otherwise would just let stuff go. And it's not like, I'm trying to characterize it charitably and I'm like, not like they're seeing the opportunity to make it all about them or as much as like that it's easier to just lock into the weird minutiae with no thought as to context. Uh, what do yeah. you make of all that? Or no, do, no, I think, am I giving I them too a, much credit? No, I think it's a, fascinating point that you know the flip side of things that I didn't really consider in terms of hey if we're in Milwaukee and I'm making this call on Giannis to end the game how many refs are made like just as a human have the balls to make that call call. whereas if you're in this bubble where there's no fans there no one's gonna like Sure, the players are gonna gripe about it, but is are the like are people like gonna be throwing things on the court? Where I I think that could have been a very real possibility, where people would just be yeah. like super upset with that call. Like maybe they're just kind of seeing it for the way they see it and just calling fouls because they see a foul. Where, yeah us as fans and us watching it on TV, most games watching games on TV, we have the benefit of replay, obviously, but we have the benefit of just being like, it's the last two, like it's the last possession of the game. You're not calling a foul. That's super touchy. uh, In that. Because as fans, we hate to, as fans, and you with the Bucks game, it was like that in in both respects to some extent. You want to see the players decide it on their own merits, quote unquote, even if it's not because it is absurd. Because if you foul, you should, and it's kind of the point they keep making over and over with these arm swinging texts or whatever, and it kind of just shows the fundamental weird sports as entertainment disconnect we have because like with the arm swinging text, like the league supposedly made a, you're not allowed to be demonstrative. And it's like, we're just enforcing the rule. Whereas we're like, fuck the rules in this moment. You know what I mean? Let the game be the game. Um, So it kind of is, is interesting in that way. Uh, And yeah, it's just like, and maybe it's harder to give on the texting, especially in the crowd, if there's a crowd and stuff like that, you can kind of give the guy more leeway where it's like, oh, well, maybe he's kind of just – he's caught up in his emotions, et cetera. Whereas if it's just you and that guy in an empty gym and he swings his arm at him, you're like, this guy's showing me up. I need to tee him up. 
But um, right. yeah, I mean, it's well, really bad and it'll be interesting to see now that you've kind of had a couple moments in a row, is there some sort of adjustment in my, in my experience with these things? It's almost like a weird political thing where like, I'm not actually not going to say what I would compare it to in my mind because it, I admit to take that would probably get me in trouble if, if the wrong person heard it. But it's kind of one of these things where like the refs are just going to double down and keep doing it or like become more steadfast in their resolve to keep calling it the way they see it. Um, that's kind of how I see it going. But you, you obviously hope that those kind of moments aren't going to rise on even bigger stages. Yeah. And I mean, one of the analogies that I kind of want to make like a cross sport analogy was this idea of when you think about soccer and how, yeah, VAR, how, right? Is that right, where you're going to go with this? Well, well, VAR, but even just like knowing the time, the manner, the situation and yeah, like how egregious sure. a foul is in terms of there being this distinct advantage of like flopping in the penalty box um, or like yeah. being able to make things happen in a penalty box and referees are well aware of that. And they know yeah. that in the penalty box, there's basically this heightened scrutiny as to whether or not that's like, mm, an yeah, it's like the foul. level even goes right. up. Right, yeah. like this egregiousness of a foul, whereas, you know, a lot, you know, there's cer- certain people that say if it's a foul, it's a foul, you call it. But in in my mind, the analogy is like, pretend you're, you're refing it in a way that maybe like the last two minutes of a game or last minute of a game, or even on those last two possessions of those two games, of that game between uh, Milwaukee and uh, Miami, is maybe there's this level raised level of scrutiny of where it's like, unless it's like a blatant, like he slaps him on the wrist, you're not going to call the foul. And like, we've seen it plenty of times before. And I think that's where it's really hard to kind of see like, Hey, I wasn't Mark Davis that ended up making that call last, last night where he ends up, calling the foul yeah i don't on, know who it was honestly. on on dragic and then he calls the foul on on Giannis, and you're just kind of like uh like that could have been like the the moment was just kind of taken away and i think that's where yeah. maybe knowing the time the place the manner knowing the situation like when to call a foul when to not is 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 super subjective and it's really hard to be able to be like we're going to call everything that is a foul unless they have like replay for literally everything, which would devolve the game so much to the point where we're watching this game for five hours. Um, so there's obviously yeah. this balance that the NBA is trying to, trying to obviously create um, with the replay challenge uh, system. And, and I wonder if that ends up getting expanded um, in future years. Yeah, I wonder um, if they're going to give. I, I wonder if we're going to go. I wonder if we're going to go to a system because the one. Well, it seems like coaches haven't quite still gotten the idea down. Like you should pretty much wait to save, save it, it until the fourth quarter, no matter yep. what. I mean, Stotts. I actually think uses it well, and he was kind of like always like that. But the only, the only. T- 
the the only other time you should basically use it is if it's like stopping your star player from getting like their fourth foul in like the third right. quarter. So it's like yeah. one of those kind of things. But I wonder if there'll be an expansion where like you automatically get one in the last two minutes or something like that. Or just even like it, I don't know. It might, might be like, too much, but maybe the system of like if you challenged correctly once you get and you get it you want to keep you it. get it yeah, again. people have mentioned yeah, that. Like that but i don't so, know like, how much people want to see i don't know it's interesting to i'd prefer that but it feels like i don't know if people want to see that and just we have to move on I'm, i but uh the thing you said about the penalty box was interesting like i almost feel like don't you wish it's not like i don't think it's been particularly bad in this playoffs necessarily but don't you want the heightened penalty box scrutiny to be applied to like three pointers, basically? Like that's almost mm-hmm. a perfect. And obviously, goals in soccer are more valuable than three pointers in basketball. But it seems like a similar thing where like you should have to foul extra on three pointers to no, have a foul no, yeah. called on you or something. Exactly. Yeah, that's like a perfect. Or like, like the, the, the entitlement to your space. Or yeah, it's it's funny. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, obviously, I don't – I'm not envious of the refs because, you know, two of us are kind of ripping them apart, but it, – and it's a no, difficult job to do. No, and I think the level of officiating in the NBA, like, on a night-to-night basis is is good. I, I, I think there – it's just so much – Especially in these, when you're watching every single one of these games, the flaws start to become more magnified, and and the overall sample size, like a really shittily ref game diffused among three games, is way right. more obvious than a really shittily game diffused across fifteen games going on in, in uh, every night in the in the NBA. You know what I mean? So, totally agree. All right, so moving on. So we're moving on. Um, I think a topic that is been really on the forefront of a lot of people, I think it's bigger, obviously, than just basketball itself. But um, you really saw this, saw the NBA kind of seize this moment um, last week, um, this past, or was it last week, last week, going into last weekend um, when I believe it was the Milwaukee Bucks in their first round series against the Orlando Magic not take the floor. And basically, I don't really know what the correct term is. Go on strike. Um, Go. uh, Yeah, I mean, there's kind of all these different words you – Right, lefty. Um, my lefty type people I follow on Twitter would say it's a strike, not a boycott, because you're withholding your labor, basically. Right, right. So, uh, work, but yeah. I don't think it's that. You know, whatever. Brief shutdown. Um, right. But the thing is, actually, it was a wildcat strike because the strike is usually your union telling you not to. Like, is usually at the direction of your union, whereas this is mm-hmm. the players. Uh, uh, in general, but who? It, what, it, it, the thing that Aside matters from is that the, the league was shut and, down right. for three days. <laughs> right. Yeah. Aside from I mean, I wanted to go back. Yeah, and sorry. I wanted to go back and kind of, if you don't mind, 
rehash out the timeline a little bit because I think it is interesting and I think history will remember this in a different way than it actually did occur so Mm -hmm. on I think it was Wednesday or maybe it was Mm -hmm. Thursday I'm trying to get but whatever day zero Jacob Blake is shot and luckily thank god not killed he's unfortunately paralyzed but he is shot as he's has his back turned to the cops and he's going into his car um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, And this is the first uh, to go kind of all the way back. Obviously uh, the kind of uh, the George Floyd protest moment was happening as, as the bubble was kind of coming into shape. And there was this thought of like, what can we do to kind of make the NBA? Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, the NBA is made up of uh, majority black players. Um, and uh, there was this thought of kind of what can we do? What should we do to make our kind of voices heard? Should we even play, et cetera, et cetera? And all these measures were taken. Having, may I mention, league pre-approved phrases on the back of your jerseys, having Black Lives Matter on the court, Um, taking the knee during every national anthem, which it's kind of, I mean, we can't go down every single rabbit hole, but it's kind of fascinating how little of um, how uncontroversial that specific act has seemed to become when you contrast it with what Colin Kaepernick did. But we've discussed that kind of thing on the show multiple times. Um, Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that this was really the first kind of police shooting, uh, high-profile police shooting since since the NBA season had uh, resumed, although I'm sure many other acts of police brutality have been committed in the intervening period, but it is what it is. Some things make it through the filter and some things don't. Um, so I think it's just important to say that, like, before – I think history may remember this as, like, a spontaneous act by the Bucks and by all accounts – it was in the sense that George Hill basically decided I'm not going to play. And then the rest of the team decided to follow him. But as we were discussing this, and I think it's important to talk about this as we kind of hash out what this will mean historically, the Celtics and the Raptors were both talking, were both discussing boycotting their first game or striking during the first game of their playoff series, which ended up kick, uh, tipping off what on Sunday or whatever day it actually ended up tipping off. Um, And me and you were texting back and forth and we're like, obviously we were supportive of it and we're like, this is good. But we were kind of having this discussion of like, and we didn't even think the league would mind it necessarily. Like we both foresaw it becoming almost like hand in hand with this black lives kind of becoming another league action that was nice, but like would kind of just happen. And then the Bucks kind of cancel it. Uh, the Bucks refusing to take the floor for their game against the Magic kind of set off this domino effect um, of all the games that night being canceled. And then basically the next two games of the, of the, the next two days of the playoffs also being canceled and also led to this small but very fascinating moment of reckoning, it seemed, within the players as to what do we do now? Uh, what is the purpose of what we're doing? And should we continue playing? Um, there was basically a meeting the next day with all the players where 
the Lakers and Clippers ended up walking out and then kind of, it's not right to say cooler heads prevail, but they kind of, everyone came back to the table and decided that kind of in concert with the owners agreeing that uh, a couple of, uh, not provisions, what would the word be? And you don't want to say concessions either, but initiatives, including opening up every uh, every NBA arena that's owned by the ownership team ownership group, uh, allowing their stadiums to be polling centers. Um, they decided, you know, we're better served uh, continuing to play, which to me as a white guy, it's not up to me to speculate as to what, the best course of action would have been or to quibble with anything they decided to do, nor to really even say that they needed some sort of purpose in doing it. In fact, I would argue that kind of the unplanned and spontaneous nature of it, I think almost made the gesture more powerful in a way because it really did. And the reason I mentioned wanted to set out the timeline was to say, I think it really did transform from it really did set itself apart from these kind of actions that had taken place in concert and with the approval of the league and really did succeed in this moment of national discourse and national attention being on this issue. And the, the most, you know, these are the most prominent black men in America to, to be frank with you, uh, whether that should or shouldn't be the case is, is, is up to your own individual uh, interpretation but basically some of the most high profile black men in America saying we're not playing because we think this issue needs to be uh, in, in center stage uh, is something I'll always remember. So sorry, man, I did kind of my monologue thing, but uh, I don't know. Now that we're a couple, we're a week or so removed from this. How do you look back on all of, all of this? What sticks out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really sticks out to me here was the spontaneity of what ended up transpiring over probably, it seemed like 30 minutes or so um, within like yeah. the like the George Hill, it being reported George Hill wasn't going to play and then he and then he basically convinced his teammates like this is the reason why I'm not playing and he said and then he goes and then everyone was pretty much on board with how he felt obviously there wasn't this um planned nature to it because Orlando the Orlando Magic were warming up and kind of like all right I guess they're not coming out to play um and I think I, I don't even I think I was reading maybe it was um, maybe it was like Chris Haynes or Mark Spears one of them that mentioned um, I believe uh, George Hill and the Bucks were pretty I wouldn't say unaware but I don't think they realized the gravity of the situation until after the fact when like when things started getting started getting rolling and people were like, all right, we're canceling this game. We're going to cancel this game. Um, And then basically canceling the rest of the games for the day. Um, Because it seemed like Milwaukee was prepared to take a forfeit for the game, or that's what was being reported. Yes. Um, And they were ready to take the forfeit 
for game five and just move on to game six and just have this be an independent act um, aside from any other um, league action type of thing that was happening, just trying to draw attention, especially because, um, you know, the, the, with the James, the Jacob Blake um, shooting happening in their home state. um, I think them just trying to draw attention to that. And I think from that, it just showed the NBA it's, and I think a lot of people, the the reaction, a lot of people, or I would say a certain group of people were saying, like, why does it matter? No one cares about, like, if the NBA stops playing for a couple games and things like that. Was I, I think it shows a lot of what these players have in terms of utilizing their voice for certain actions that I don't think people think athletes really have the power to do in most situations. And they've kind of shown how they can start a conversation and continue a conversation. And also it shows that when, when their voice is utilized, they're able to have to create, certain actionable change um, with the partners that they have in the NBA and the owners of um, their teams. And I think that for, for me as a fan of the NBA, NBA has to be an encouraging sign to see that these owners um, and the league itself cares deeply about its players and not just the amount of money that can be made on the court. And I think that's kind of my big takeaway, especially seeing that there hasn't been there. there, It's not like the NBA was like, Oh my God, we need to get this like on the road, or at least that doesn't seem like it was publicly publicly reported in terms it at of least like, wasn't happening in that initial jump. If it did, was right. going to happen, it wasn't going to happen. Maybe that would have happened. I mean, the alternate universe where this is protracted or they're threatening their, or the threat to cancel the season truly emerges, which I think it will be in hindsight forgotten that for a hot sec, it seemed like that might happen. Although I was always a little bit, I mean, we were texting back and forth and like when LeBron walked out and, and I'm not, you know what? I wish I almost hadn't even said this, but I said to you, this strikes me as more of a leverage play than something they'll actually do. But it is mm. important to remember that that could have happened in that alternate universe yeah. where the push really does come to shove would have been a fascinating one, although it doesn't. You know, once again, I'm not I, everyone, especially the black players who are ultimately making these decisions are entitled to make the choice that's best for them and how they want to get their message across. Um, but uh, right. another thing I, I think I wanted to say to you, I, I'm sorry, if you want to keep wrapping no, no, up, I you th- can, I'm sorry. Think, no, no, I think, yeah, the, all I really want to I had a point on the nice to, that I want. It's nice to see their voice being used and utilized in a way that, can be made that can that we can see uh, actionable change like polling locations and polling centers happen 
um, just by utilizing the way their voice and their actions. Yeah. Um, and I certainly hope, and I would also say to people who, I mean, I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic on these things. Uh, but I will say to anyone who was like, what did they get out of this? The Milwaukee Bucks had an audience with the, with the governor of Wisconsin and their, uh, uh, and their attorney general. And actually, I think all of this inspired the government, uh, the governor, who I, I'm not sure if he's a Democrat or Republican. I think he's a Democrat to reconvene their legislature to kind of consider certain police reform bills and stuff like that, which obviously you have to think of as a positive development. The thing about the owners is an interesting point because that's kind of the thing I'm, I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking away from all of this with an eye towards, um, I do want like the, I, the question of, and once again, like, I just want to stress that like, I'm fine. Like I'm okay with the act of this kind of small act of resistance or however you want to characterize it being messy and being unplanned because that's all of these issues are messy and it's not fair to expect like, and people in any, a marginalized group in any situation to hold them to the standard of like, well, you have to organize and like plan your act of protest in the perfect way. You know what I mean? Like they deserve some leeway to, to be emotional or to be imperfect in how they carry things out. But the thing I wanted to say about the owners and once again, plagiarizing from Zach Lowe a little bit is, Going forward, how does this discourse continue and do uh, tensions emerge? Like we're coming up on an election in 2020 and, you know, how that plays out and how things change or don't following that will will be interesting. But, you know, police shootings are going to continue and the governors in the NBA are going to continue to be majority white. And many of them, Tillman Fertitta, uh the owner of the Spurs, I forget his name. I mean, the fucking DeVos family owns the Magic. They're going to be these conservative owners in the NBA. And do players, now that they've found they have this voice, do they use it more is kind of the thing I'm getting at. And it'll be interesting. And do we eventually reach some sort of moment where even more radical change than what's happened initially can be? Um, can be brought about and what does that change require is is an interesting question now these are all big questions i don't really have an answer to but you know in that now that that kind of historical bridge has been crossed it's interesting to to think about what will transpire from here i don't know yeah and i think that's a good question to kind of pose um I don't have the answers. Obviously, they're extremely difficult. Yeah, no, difficult. I wasn't expecting yeah, that. Right, right. There's extremely difficult, I mean, qu- um, questions to answer. And I doubt many people have the the uh, the foresight or the answers, the, you know, the correct answers to all the, the ways that those things can be pursued. But I, I do think it poses an interesting question as to whether or not this brings about difference, um, differences and whether or not tensions are raised between, um, you know, very conservative, you know, most owners have a lot of money, typically conservative, um, 
I'm not saying all of them are, but typically most owner, most of these owners are conservative um, in their political leanings and whether or not those things end up changing the way they view um, their, I guess, teams, the way they view some of the players that are on their teams and how um, does that, how does politics kind of influence um, people's, I guess people's, I would say, um, manner as to how they bring, go about working or playing in the NBA. And I, I think that yeah. one, I think, I mean, everyone can say, I think the whole politics shouldn't be in sports thing is one of those things that is really just short-sighted um, and in terms yeah. of just that like politics, whether you lean right, lean left or far left, far right have been in sports pretty much forever um, regardless of like where, wherever you, you are on the political spectrum, you know, certain people's acts have, brought about certain change um and like sports culture they're a good reflection of where we're at um in in i guess i guess like today's like culture and like whether and it, it's a good representation of where we can head and where we can go um and it's a it can be a microcosm of that and i i think that's where um it's going to be fascinating to see um, how this affects that relationship between players and owners moving forward, uh, what it looks like when the CBA is up and whether or not there's tensions that arise there. Um, there, you know, a lot of the financial implications if they hadn't played um, would have been, I think really fascinating in terms of um, how players would have been ultimately hurt by that in terms of their financial pockets um, in comparison to what it, what type of impact that would have had on the owners, um, which would have been a lot less, but obviously would have hurt them more uh, or would have hurt players more. So that, I think that's kind of the interesting rub here as to like how, playing really like how playing could have and not playing could have impacted them in the long run financially and their livelihoods in terms of being able to make money um, and whether or not there's certain people or individuals um, that are willing to forego those I guess financial Fi that financial comfort um, to make a stand and to um, talk about certain issues um, and not also not only just talk, but make it have it be brought about with some of their action. And I think that's the I, I think that's like the really interesting, like, is someone going to take that big step? Um, and I think that'll be a fast, fascinating thing to monitor um, as 
the se- this season ends and as we go into next season. Yeah, no, you made the, I mean, I will we'll move on from this, but you made the point about the sports politics thing. And it seems yeah. like, like, I mean, it's out the window in the NBA at this point, pretty much. I, I always contrast the NBA with the NFL on this podcast, but it'll be, in, I'm really interested to see as the NFL season kicks off, how it shoot not, God, I don't want to make this too racehorsey or whatever, because there are real people, I mean, there are real yeah. people involved and but i mean i no one who anyone who knows me knows that i would like to see the changes made in these areas go much further than they're being uh than the ones that are being sanctioned by these leagues or that they've even won thus far but how the nfl kind of treat how the league talks uh, addresses these things and what their messaging is around black lives matter and the like and what individual players do and say as opposed to the NBA will be fascinating. But what you mentioned though, just that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at before. And once again, like no one, I'm not saying any player needs to do anything or that they should do something, but you're, you're right in that sense of like, now that we have crossed this bridge or now that this has happened, what, what if, uh, uh, I mean, it's a horrible, eh, it's not actually going to go into hypotheticals. It's not worth it, but yeah, I mean, it's the going forward aspect of this. uh, Was this a one-off thing or does this set the stage for more radical action down the line is something that, that is interesting, but whatever, we don't have to keep banging that point over and over again. Want to talk about a white guy? Yeah. I mean, Um, I mean, there has, I mean, like, Let's no, I don't want to go into that. I don't even want to. Yeah, no. I don't want to go into the white that the racial aspect of Steve right, Nash right. being hired as the coach of the Nets. But Steve Nash was it was announced today, absolutely out of nowhere, one yep. of the more surprising coaching hires since probably I'm thinking like Brad Stevens to the Celtics, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. Steve Nash announced the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, Beeline was pretty surprising too. Be, Steve Nash was hired, announced as the coach of the Brooklyn Nets today. Kevin, um, what I want you to kind of go. I'd like for you to kind of be dual pronged here. Kind of, what was your initial reaction, and then here, twelve hours or so later, how are you feeling about it? Okay. So initially, actually, actually, you texted me and I found out from you. So yeah. we're currently studying for the bar exam. So I don't have my phone on me all the time just because I need to focus on studying. So I, re- I think I answered back 30 to 40 minutes later. And you just, I think you just texted um, Steve Nash. And then with like a couple yes, of questions. Because marks. I didn't want to do, yes, I didn't want to do the thing of like, Sometimes even you do it occasionally and it's not, yep. a, but occasionally no. people text me blazers related things. And I'm like, I know I saw already. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't want to do that with you necessarily. So I just texted it. But of course, the one time I did it, you truly didn't know what was happening. Yeah. So uh, I was, but I'm sorry. I was continue. Scr- yeah. So I didn't know what was happening. I was kind of scrambling. It's sad. The idea that you thought he possibly had died is. So is that entered my that was the first reaction that entered because, you know, there's been 
honestly like a lot of things culturally with a lot of these a lot of famous people passing away over the past week you know Chadwick Boseman talked about John Thompson uh Lute Olson uh Tom Seaver like so there are just so many shout out to Uncle Cliffy Cliff Robinson as well yeah Cliff Robinson there's just been a lot of different like people that have been somewhat related to sports basketball like kind like just in general that I was kind of like oh my god Steve Nash too um that was my initial reaction and then I looked stuff up on Twitter and he gets hired and uh by the net and i obviously didn't see it coming um i was perplexed by it at first just from a pure like coaching hire like i know steve nash hasn't had any experience um had being a head coach uh he was this advisor to golden state i believe his other official job was being a Champions League analyst um, on T or on like Bleacher Report um, when they had had the right to the Champions with League. Team Canada at some point, right? Also, involved just with to add. so he had a lot of these different roles, um, like not even related to basketball um, with the Champions League analyst stuff, which is kind of fascinating to see him in that world. Um, so I just didn't know that he was even interested in coaching. Um, I don't think anyone really saw this coming. Um, and then to be frank, I'm not exactly sure he was either, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. I think it's possible that kind of just, it was an offer he couldn't refuse as it were, but um, right. and, yeah, and sorry, I guess keep going. Chance- I'm being so right, right. fucking annoying. No, no, I guess the, definitely not annoying. I guess the thing that um, was probably the pull is that the Nets are going to be good next year if everyone's healthy. Like, there's no chance yeah. that this team is going to be bad if everyone is healthy. I, I mean, they're going to clearly make the playoffs, it seems like, especially if Kyrie, KD, are can can move around and not get injured and play at least 70 games in the season. I expect them fully expect them to win at least 50 games if um, they're both ready to go. Um, And I think that as your first coaching opportunity, it's probably extremely tough to turn down um, with that guaranteed success. He's seen what Steve Kerr's done without, having any head coaching experience kind of coming from a a front office role. And it seems like for me, I was a little confused initially. And then now as I think about it more as looking at the coaching pool um, and potential guys that the Nets were thinking about considering. And it seemed like Jacques Vaughn, was reported as the runner up to the job and he's staying on as the lead assistant and, uh, for the Nets. And I just every yes, I was going to say you took a deep uh what I heard what you told me you did is once you saw it you were like but but Jacques Vaughn and then you saw he was staying on as an assistant and you you did a big deep breath sigh and you were like all big, right now I feel it, better. It, it was a big exhale. Yeah. <laughs> But no, on, yeah, I was just like, 
as long as it wasn't someone like Jacques Vaughn or like this retread, like Jason Kidd's name was somewhat getting thrown around. And I was just like, please, no, please. Hopefully it's not him. So like the fact that it was Nash and that he like, there's no bad stuff on him, but there's also no like good stuff on him could be, could work in his favor in that, we don't really know what to expect and that's yeah. the the fun and interesting part whereas like if if they hired someone like Jacques Vaughn um Jason Kidd who's already already inherited a net like a super team with the Nets like with the 2013 like when it, they made the huge trade for Paul Pierce and KG on their last legs and like he really couldn't get it done even then like the fact that they were thinking about that and there was other coaches that were being talked about that I was frankly not too excited about um yeah why not risk it and just see see if this gamble works out um it would have been fascinating yeah like would it like they kind of went the Steve Kerr route Nick Nurse is obviously one of those guys that really grinded in the G League and like took that route and I wonder I wonder if the success I was wondering if some like the success of someone like a Nick Nurse or something like that change would change like maybe the way teams looked at and hired coaches and believe me there's like a ton of jobs that are opening up like this New Orleans job is open Philly job is open there there are reports that Tyron Liu possibly might be getting the Philly job um there's also like um what what other jobs open chicago the chicago the jobs job. open yeah so it's so there's a bunch of jobs that are open uh we talked i i believe did did we mention the um uh what's it called uh tibbs i think we mentioned in the last podcast tibbs got hired by yeah we did um, talk about tibbs by, by the nick briefly yeah briefly so like there's you know, a lot of these jobs are open and I'm, I'm curious to see like what direction certain franchises go depending on the personnel that's on this team. Like, especially with Philly because of trying to sort out the whole Embiid and, um, and Simmons dynamic. And then the New Orleans job is probably got to be the most, one of the most attractive jobs on the market, um, at least from my point of view. So, yeah, I'm really sure. curious about. I I'm really to, curious about what happens with that. But as a, as an fan, say, ultimately, I'm kind of happy, but with the with the hire. Yeah, the interesting thing is an outside. And when I saw the, I, it I mean, it did become the take. So I'm not giving myself any credit. But when I saw the name, I immediately went Steve Kerr in my head because there's the Warriors connection, and apparently the the reason I interrupted you to say I'm not sure he wanted to be a coach apparently the connection Nash had with KD through the Warriors gig is pretty strong and that Durant wanted him to be the coach uh so I think that possibly factored into things as well but you know you think about Kerr or whatever and you look at the track record of these players who have or analysts who have gone into the league and become coaches I mean they're kind of the Kerr is the big success and then you have like Mark Jackson and then you kind of have the less successful put people like 
Magic or who's the other one? Is was a bird on that list? There's another Isaiah, oh, Isaiah Thomas. Thomas, obviously. Yeah, yeah Isaiah Thomas. And so, but good. I like to think that like kind of in this era, especially when you have kind of more analytics and for like someone who's been in a front office and kind of understands some fundamental stuff should be like not to say magic couldn't have been a great coach or whatever, but you're coming in with a little bit more direction probably and kind of a set plan as, as opposed to kind of those, those older days. Um, so, but the thing I was thinking is that like, this is real. the next gig is really a two pronged job. Your first job is to kind of a la Steve Kerr in the warriors is to take these great pieces and try and figure out what your ethos is going to be offensively and it shouldn't be like on one hand that's not that hard of a job with Durant and Kyrie because they're both really really good basketball players and they're arguably two of the most like pure plug-and-play good basketball players you have in the league like Kevin Durant especially you can really you kind of saw with the Billy Donovan years in Oklahoma City you kind of just can be like uh our offensive strategy is Kevin Durant's going to be really really good and it works yeah uh so it shouldn't be that hard but simultaneously they are two interesting pieces and they both want the ball in their hands and etc etc and you need to kind of figure that out and the other thing part of the job is managing the personalities right and steve kerr by all accounts is a very easygoing guy he's been, he was around those warriors teams and he should be up to and he has a good relationship with both guys and you would think he's up to that task as well like it seems like the implosion potential of him as opposed to like Jason Kidd or Josh Vaughn is lower. Um, now that's not to maybe you're giving it. We're I'm I am giving him too much credit to act like he can just come in and be serviceable at least. Um, and and we'll see. But uh, I think it's interesting. I I'm in, I'm I look at those two fronts and I see at the very least possibility on both and and you mentioned the 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 we the the Sixers thing and I wanted to point out that like I we talked on the last pod we did about the Nets and how good can they be next year and I wanted to say that if you're a Nets fan and you're watching these playoffs aren't you kind of saying like I like our chances next year even more now than you were before because the whole top of the the whole top of the the whole top of the conference has struggled you know what I mean there's not like these juggernauts that you're necessarily having to fight with the Bucks look shaky the Raptors look shaky the Celtics and the and the Heat look good but you know at the end of the day you're not looking at them as monoliths and the Sixers are shaky so so they should be able if they come in and are immediately the class of the conference I don't think that will happen I think there will be growing pains but it's certainly possible, so it'll it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, like I think I think you hit the nail right on the head in that I'm just not that nervous, especially with the talent on this Nets team of really any of these Eastern Conference teams. Maybe that's just a little bit too much confidence to have um, in in the in this Nets team, but it's not like you know, I would say talent-wise, depth-wise, and especially if they're able to re-sign Joe Harris, 
Like, I'm really liking the depth and the talent. I would say the only team I would be super scared of um, in the East would probably be Boston if they're able to add one more guy um, and, and shore up the bench. But even then, like, I would say the Nets should be fairly competitive against any team. And, yeah, I mean... I'm, I guess I'm putting my $10 on them uh, to make the finals and, and win the finals and hopefully see where that takes me. But I'm not like, by no means am I just like, uh, I'm a little worried about how this is, is going to turn out. I'm, I'm on the opposite end of like fairly excited to see how this team performs. And finally I'll get to see KD in the Nets Jersey after basically a year of waiting and uh, yeah, that's going to be a, a lot of fun to be able to to watch him perform in a Nets jersey. And I'm excited to go watch a game in person and see Steve Nash walking up and down the sideline doing his thing and yelling at Kyrie Irving, who's inevitably going to drive him crazy as he goes into ISO mode, where Steve Nash would have probably passed the ball in certain situations where Kyrie's taking him one on one. So. It's it's going to be fun. I'm sure there's going to be growing pains, like you mentioned. But um, in conclusion, I'd pro- I'm pretty excited to see what this Nets team can do next year. Yeah, no, that that completely makes sense to me. Um, we've been doing this now for about two hours. I'm I'm out of steam, and my transition to get you to a close would be, well, you know, this next season is one thing, but we. Hell, the way these playoffs have going, I'm excited for for the rest of what uh what this playoffs has to offer. I mean, as we get, we're getting to this weird now. We're getting to this confluence where like the playoffs are going to be simultaneously uh, simultaneously ramping up as our bar prep is ramping up. Like, what do we? What do we? We probably do one more, right? At least we do. I don't we know do if we one, can do anything during, during the finals or probably, like as we get to yeah. that end of September we're range. Pr- but. We're probably doing one more um, post the second round, I would say, going into the conference finals or even mid-conference finals. We maybe do one more um, and then uh, we'll see what ends up happening in the finals. But it's always I just had an idea, oh, actually. Okay, go ahead. I think if the finals, well, it'll depend what we're both doing, but if the finals are still going on post-bar, I think we do a podcast together. Maybe we COVID situation, uh, situation, um, COVID situation pending. Maybe we, we do it even in person. You can come check out my, my, my new apartment or something. We do it in person and we like pop a bottle of champagne while we're fucking doing the podcast. I mean, that sounds wonderful. I, I mean, I, I've been uh, imbibing a little bit on some whiskey during this podcast. So it's been fun to do. Um, I do want to do, I want to mention one thing before we end this, uh, like, this long i just realized i had something else i wanted to say too okay well and maybe i'll maybe i'm teeing you up for it so you mentioned that we have a lot of things yep we have a lot of things to look for during the the, uh nba playoffs um andrew wanted to talk about snoop dogg um and this new commercial that he's been doing with uh 
Corona, um, not not a PSA on coronavirus, but a Corona ad. No. Um, what well, is your I'm take sure on this? Tied in, I'm I'm sure in some boardroom somewhere they panically were like, okay, w- Corona sales are down because of coronavirus. What are we going to do? And they're like, okay, let's just pivot to Snoop Dogg. Like Snoop Dogg has become this kind of interesting thing. Like he's in a lot of commercials. I'm trying to think there's some recently, I don't know if it's like, if it was Taco Bell, there was some sort of like, or maybe I think it was Doritos. Like he was recently in a Doritos commercial with Martha Stewart. He's kind of become this like just lovable populist pop culture figure, which like good for you. I like him as well. That's great. But there's this Corona commercial with him and it's been playing constantly. Like every NBA game I watch, it pops up three, three times. And the problem, the thing that's, it's one of the most incoherent to me, it's like one of the most incoherent commercials of the last few years Because he's like, so it's Snoop Dogg and he's on a beach with the Corona. That makes sense. And he starts reciting this poem. And the crux of the poem is like, we use our phones too much and we're on social media too much. And we should start like taking more time to like enjoy things a la like with your Corona, I guess. But it's like this weird like. I didn't know what he was saying like the first three times I watched it because it's like this very like verbose and like blah blah it's like keeping up with the Joneses nowadays like why is Snoop Dogg saying this like 1950s expression that like is weird and like he's like he said she said can't even follow the thread down the hole we all go it's like why is Snoop Dogg saying like have him like say like it in a and it's not like a racial thing but like say it in a rap style or like say like why is he and it takes the 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 commercial lasts like an eternity it feels like it's like a five minute commercial I I just would (laughs) have corona should have been more to the like it just so all over the place I all I want is and this is Andrew's commercial corner is kind of replacing Korean snack corner between this I know. and my take on the Chris Paul commercial. Chris Paul. A few I was weeks about back. to bring up Chris but Paul I would just this. implore, I would just implore Corona to to do better. I, I I would have I would have written a better I would have written a better poem than that at at least. And and I it's not Snoop's fault. He delivers this poem with gusto. I, I just. Um, I just don't uh I don't, don't get it and and every time I see it it baffles me. I feel like I've woken up and so like I feel like I like to, to your I feel like I've drank three glasses of whiskey and like I'm drunk and I don't like I'm like what is uh, Snoop Dogg's on a commercial like and he's saying a weird poem I I don't know man. So, yeah. No, it it there you I go. Think, That's it. I mean yeah, the Chris Paul one I was confused by. Um, this one I am even more confused by. And it just makes me think like we could probably open up our own marketing agency and think of something a mm. little bit more clever and better as a as a backup yeah. option if like our law career. Hey, go I'll down just the toilet. common sense common sense marketing. Common sense marketing. Don't yeah, have I, something sell your product that's predicated on you having a crazy stalker. 
and don't have one of the most famous rappers of your generation not Rex recite some sort of bizarre limerick in lieu of any sort of yeah rap. And it's supposed to be like populist. It's supposed to be like we can all enjoy a Corona or whatever. Not like this weird. I, I don't even know. All you have to do is have him on a beach saying like, mm, Corona, and that's it. Like you fucked it up. You you were three quarters of the way there, and you just you fucked it up. Yeah. So we have been right. during. I mean, yeah, during this extended. <laughs> I mean, during Garrett's quarantines, uh, uh, quarantine podcast, we've pretty much replaced Korean Snack Corner with commercial. Andrew's commercial corner. So I can't wait to see whether or not Andrew talks about another beer like Michelob Ultra <laughs> and maybe like Brooks Kepka or something like that. So it'll be fascinating to see what ends up coming up down the line um, during the next podcast that we have. Um, really excited. I'm probably doing a couple more of these actually, not just basketball related. We have some big sports starting up again. English Premier League soccer, believe it or not, is back already next weekend or two weekends from now. Um, And football starting next Thursday, um, believe it or not, which is crazy. Um, You're going to do a podcast with your brother? Yep, doing doing a preview podcast with the brothers. So that's pro, that's going to be coming. Those two podcasts are coming out in the next week or so. So God, be on the lookout for that. I didn't even get to tell my story of my. I didn't even get to tell my story of. We have to be done, but I didn't even get to tell my story of my my power going out during my fantasy draft oh, last man. week. Oh well, yeah. Th- that yeah, that might have to be uh, a story that I just bring up uh, during the podcast. Uh, with my brother. Um, so yeah, I have nothing else to say, Andrew. I think we've both run out of words and are kind of on our last legs, but thanks for coming back on the podcast. As always, always happy to have you. It's always a good time. And it looks like we didn't miss much of a game between Denver and the Clippers. It was 120 uh, to 97 um, going the way of the Clippers. So it doesn't look like we missed much. Um, so, Andrew, thanks again for coming on the pod. Um, everyone, thanks again. If you're still listening to me babbling on, thank you as always.